Welcome to the Guitar Almany Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. with the legendary Peter Danner, who I think of as being the longtime editor of, of Soundboard, and it turns out that he was a founding member of the Guitar Foundation of America. It was there at the very first meeting when it, uh, when it gets started back in 1973. So, Peter, how are you? It's such an honor to, to meet you and be speaking with you and having you on the show. Well, thank you. Legendary. I, I don't know what <laughs> everybody's a legend. <laughs> so I think in my case it means I've been around for a long time. Well, you know, that, that might be in the my kind 80s, way of saying so I, things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in my eighties, so I would be. <laughs> so what what are you doing with your time now? What uh, what's 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 active on your plate these days? Well, I'm trying to come out from um, COVID, and uh, what I do now is uh, listen to far too many CDs, do far too many uh, jigsaw puzzles. Oh, <laughs> uh, I I am a, um, a, a historian by by bent. Uh, I always I think the world is divided into two halves. There are the innovators who are the ones who think ahead to see where we're going to go. And other historians who are interested in looking back to see how it is we got to where we were to, to here. And I, when I get to a place, I always want to find out its, its history as to how it got to be where it is now. So I got interested sure. in local history, um, ah. the local history society. Uh, I took up lawn bowling for some. Um, oh, my goodness. There's a good lawn bowl. Uh, back to a num number of greens in, in, in the area. Yeah. Uh, and they're quite specific. It's a very challenging game, but it's not overly um, taxing. So I became the club historian of that. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> you just you can't stay away from being a historian. That's fantastic. <laughs> and your 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 initial interest in the guitar came that way as well, right? I mean, you were you were not necessarily. You know, I, I grew up in the days when there was no television. It was all radio, right. and and records were seventy eight RPM. Uh, uh, you went down about one record, or you bought an album, which would be a longer piece. And um, I got uh, more interested in folk music back in uh, okay. in the forties. I think somebody at Christmas time gave me a three uh, record album of Burl Ives songs, and okay. he up on the guitar. And uh, I always associated guitars with. Uh, you know, cowboys. Actually, the first guitar I ever had was when I was a kid. Some aunt sent me the Roy Rogers special. Oh, fantastic. The, the king of the cowboys and his horse. <laughs> that cleared, uh, it really wasn't playable. <laughs> but as I say, it went well with my cap gun and my uh, my cowboy hat, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that, so, so I always thought it was sort of a, a folk instrument. And uh, so I, I was... Uh, playing those uh, in, 
I remember taking my guitar to high school and playing, uh, you know, oh, come listen to Peter play the, the uh, Burl Live songs. So, um, and, and after that, um, the, the, the kind of uh, acoustic string band sound of Grand Old Opry. That's, okay. uh, and I did uh, oh, Hank Williams covers and uh, oh, people like Roy Acuff and uh, Eddie Arnold and Ernest Hubb and you know, Hank Snow, all that, that, sure. kind, of, that kind of stuff. I, that was, I saw uh, Ernest Tubb play at the Prince William County Fair in Virginia when I was probably four or five years old. You have memories of it? <laughs> I do. <laughs> but it's Texas Troubadours. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're you're luckier than I. When you were <laughs> four, no. Yeah, but he was a legend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I uh, I eventually um, took up the classical guitar because it was more challenging in, in a way. Sure. And as I think I said to you previously, I think it was my mother who suggested. <laughs> there was some some gentleman who could play Bach on the guitar, <laughs> and that sounded better than Hank Williams covers like "My Bucket's Got a Hole in It." So uh, I we had a neighbor who was a taught guitar, and uh, uh, oh yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of neat. I can do things with my right hand as well as my left, you know. <laughs> so. Uh, Here's a one carcassi study, and there's another carcassi study, and before you know it, I'm hooked. And how old how old were you when you started playing classical? Let's see, that would have been in 1970. So I would have been a junior in high school. I would have been about 14. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> And you were you were, you were hooked. And uh, the, what was what was the progression of events that then led you between that time and and uh, your your founding of the the Guitar Foundation of America? How 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 does that all go? Well, I first had to get a doctorate in musicology. Okay, and I didn't really I didn't really know anything about music. All right. <laughs> when I went to uh, when I went to college as a freshman, I was a history major. Okay. And um, it, it, this was a, a place where I was in a dorm room um, with, uh, and my roommate had a very nice tenor voice, and he was a great fan of Burl Ives. He wanted to be, a, and he was a much better, uh, had, the, had the tenor voice. And he dragged me to a rehearsal, uh, this, you know, all these events they have on college campuses, sure. dragged me to, to a rehearsal of the Messiah that they put on each year. Okay. So I walked in there, they were doing uh, All We Like Sheep, mm -hmm. and I never heard anything like that. My mind was just blown away. This, this, this fantastic sound, you know, this, it was just a piano at that time. They, they, the final performance was with a, a full symphony orchestra, but um, they, um, you know, said they needed, they needed voices. So I went and uh, faked the baritone. I, um, so... I didn't read in the bass clef, but I, I probably all cows eat grass. That's probably all I all I knew about it. <laughs> so uh, right then, I wanted to change my major to uh, to music. So I had to go to another um, college. This was this was back in Pennsylvania, where I was okay. Freshman, small school called Sinus College in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. It's it's a very uh, it's a good school. It's a small school, but it has all these like. 
So I came west to where I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and okay. went to UCSB. But I had to take some remediary things before they would allow me in. I had to learn some piano proficiency. I had to pass right. a piano exam. I couldn't play the piano. <laughs> I had to pass uh, a, a harmony exam. I couldn't do harmony, uh, except, you know, I knew tonic and dominant and subdominant and right. that sort of stuff as it applied to the guitar. Right. But, uh, uh, so, so I had had to go to summer school. I applied myself and I did get ad admitted. And uh, I made it through um, four years at UCSB after one year at uh, Ursinus. And I wanted to go on. So I was accepted at uh, Stanford. And I came up here and I got a, um, uh, a Master of Arts in 1959 and my doctor in 19. 67. Okay. And uh, I, I was fortunate to get a, a grant and aid to go to England for a year. Oh, okay. Uh, I was looking for a dissertation topic. That's what it was. Had nothing to do with the guitar, nothing to do with the lute. Um, and as, as an undergraduate, because I was in music history, they, they and oh, he plays the guitar. Go out and learn something about the lute. Right. So I got a tubby lute somewhere and uh, learned to read the French tablature and uh, a little bit of Italian tablature, and uh, I, I did apply myself. Was, I, was this I, before I or after Julian Burke Bream was doing the the lute activities? Yes, it was uh, actually he was a little later. Um, okay, so uh, so you were on the cutting edge there. <laughs> nobody played the lute back in the. <laughs> see, we're talking we're talking the nineteen fifties when I was okay. an undergraduate, and. Uh, yeah. He was just a uh, he was just a lad at that time. Yeah. <laughs> so I um, I did get this uh, grant to go to England to work on my dissertation, which had nothing to do with guitars or lutes. I wound up writing the most dry, uh, dreary dissertation. It was the title was something like uh, the Miserere Michi as a genre, a cantus firmus genre, in the Tudor Reformation. My goodness. <laughs> so there I am uh, every day down to the, uh, the British Museum co copying out um, music. Lots of cannons were done on yeah. the Missouri. No copy machines in those days. Of course. Uh, yeah. No Xerox. Um, so you hand uh, copied the thing out right. of pencils only, please, because you're working with the 15th, 16th century, uh, <laughs> 17th century um, manuscripts. Uh, but I did uh, get to meet a, 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 a number of interesting people while I was there. Um, let's see, what was the uh, the one I was going to uh, going to mention? I can't I can't think of it now. But uh, it will it will occur to me. Oh, oh I, I know what I was going to say. It did apply to the the guitar uh, coming down um, Shaftesbury Avenue one day? I saw this sign for classical guitar lessons. Okay. And I had brought my guitar with me from uh, Cal California when uh, we moved over there. I, I was married by, by then. Okay. Didn't have any children. So um, I, my wife was along. She's an Anglophile, so that, that, that worked out Perfect. well. <laughs> so this this uh, classical guitar lessons at the Spanish Guitar Center. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I went around the corner to Seven Dials there and walked up the stairs and... Uh, um, it says it's a place to do uh, get your classical guitar lessons. Oh, yes, 30 shillings or 
um, a month or something like that. Mm. And this kid comes by, this brash lad with glasses and short pants, as if he owned the place. Well, he did own the place. That was John Williams. Oh, my gosh. At about the edge of, I don't know, 10 or something like that. You know, I want to see my dad. You know, this sort of... Blah, 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 blah. Oh, <laughs> come on, I'm saying <laughs> So uh, I had lessons with Len Williams. Who, uh, okay. My was, goodness. So he was uh, uh, he was a sort of a strict, humorless, doctrinaire person. He was a communist. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's one reason why John Williams didn't come to this country for a long time. With, yeah. With just that. So he was a very opinionated uh, person. So um, you just let him have his way. And, and, sure. And uh, so he, he, he taught me that Everything I had learned about the guitar and guitar technique was wrong. Of course, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't know anything about Restro. There, you know, that's that sort of thing. My my, my snaps were all wrong. Uh, I was barring the uh, <laughs> the wrong way. That was another thing I did as a uh, undergraduate in high school. Uh, I played rhythm guitar in a dance band. Right, so it's all bar chords, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the leader was a uh, trombone player. So everything was either in the key of B flat yeah. or <laughs> E flat, you know. And I thought, well, I could tune the guitar, but a rhythm guitar is supposed to chump, chump, chump anyway, right. so mm -hmm. strings are, are out. So I played bar cards all night. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the E flat is not the guitar's most no. comfortable. Oh, not at all. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, I I, uh, I learned from Len Williams that everything I had learned was was wrong. So, um, um, and of course, when you get out of college with a document, you need to have a livelihood. Right. And I was making my livelihood. By that time, I had two children, um, and I um, I got messed. Um, I did um, reviews of, of concerts um, okay. for the local newspapers. I was first a stringer, and then I was a staff writer. And I'd be sent to operas and symphonies and string quartets. And, uh, this was and, back in California? Uh, this, this was in uh, Palo Alto. Okay. I, I'd, I'd come from uh, Santa Barbara up to uh, Palo Alto, where Stanford is. Right. 30 miles south of San Francisco, 20 miles north of San Jose. Um, and I'm still here. Yay. Uh, and I came up here when it was uh, really before it was Silicon Valley. It was still an agricultural area. And then the orchard started to disappear. And so I grew up in uh, Silicon Valley and, and uh, uh, long before Google and Facebook and, uh, and, and all that. IBM had a plant down in San Jose. And then Intel came in and the price of real estate went through the roof. I, right. I bought a house before uh, the prices started to rise. I lived in this house now 50 years. Wow. So um, I, I couldn't afford to move now. <laughs> so um, I, I reviewed for the, the local newspapers, and uh, that, was, that was very good. Um, I had a, a job at uh, Chabot College in, okay. uh, in, across the bay in, in uh, Hayward. And... That was my commute job. I, I, I went over there and, and, and taught group guitar over. over oh, okay. Uh, I did that for three years, and um, I was using Fred Node as a, uh, as a method. Uh, it, that did not work out all, as well as I, I, I thought it would 
um, you spend a lot of time in class tuning guitars. Of course. <laughs> and I needed more. Um, I needed more ensemble work at a very uh, early uh, degree of competency. And mm -hmm. there is that material available now. Uh, there wasn't then. Right. Uh, we're talking about the early 70s here. Um, and uh, so I was trying to make a career on, on that as well as, as the other. Um, I did finally get a job at Menlo College, which is just in the next town up, Menlo Park. Okay. Uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, college. Um, it has a, um, a reputation of having the children of wealthy foreigners um, enter uh, the university because they're educated, but they don't have the transcripts that American universities require. Okay. So um, this place was full, and when I first went there, of Iranians, the, the, the Shah's government had fallen, and there was there was money, and there was very sophisticated people. Uh, they were well educated, but their kids just did not have the uh, the transcripts that American universities could uh, uh, accept. So it was a kind of a uh, school where the the faculty had the Volkswagens in the parking lot. And the students had the Rolls Royces and the horses. Well, not Rolls Royces. That's an old, the Lamborghinis. <laughs> so I did have a couple of very good students over there. And uh, I was told to teach harmony and uh, music appreciation alternately. Okay. And um, they did uh, not particularly interested in what music appreciation generally is, you know. Sure. The beauties of uh, Schubert's um, Unfinished Symphony, for example, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the appreciation of Haydn's string quartets, you know. Uh, so um, to keep their interest, I thought, well, we'll talk about it from their point of view. And the point was to learn musical vocabulary. Okay. The musical vocabulary is tossed around so loosely. You know, everybody talks about, well, I think Apple started this, uh, everything on there is a song, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> the Eroica Symphony is not a song. Right. <laughs> there's a song form, and it's like songs without words, which, which follow the, 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 the form. So a, there's a, a song has specific meaning, you know? Right. And um, there's a difference between... Um, form and style yeah. um you know uh, somebody will come and say um we're learning ethnomusicology and and the people from um swaziland brought, brought new musical forms you know they brought new musical styles, styles. There, there, <laughs> there, can, there can be forms like uh, indian ragas of course but usually um, when they say style uh the, the um, form, they really mean style. There's, there's all kinds of things. So uh, let's listen to, say, a Peter Gabriel song and talk about it, uh, not like um, how Rolling Stone magazine, where they talk about everything but the music. Right. You know, they'll, they'll talk about the costumes, they'll talk about the uh, stage setup, they'll talk about the lyrics. <laughs> They'll talk about who's sleeping with whom. Right. <laughs> Very little will they talk about 
what form is this in? What key is this in? You know, uh, how does this go? Let's let's take a Peter Gabriel song or U2 and talk about it in musical terms only. Yes. Okay, what's happening? What mode is this, you know? Yeah. And that got that got them thinking because everything's made up of you know the same notes. Of course, yeah. So uh, whatever the, the style, I'm not sure with the computer music you hear uh, yeah. all the time is background music. <laughs> it uh, has much of the way of any of any of that, but it's uh, you know it, that's that's sort of more like a sound collage that, that right. we're getting now. Um, so anyway, that was that was my innovation there. It it it, it worked. At least they can keep coming back. You know? Sure. Yeah. That's it's it, you know I I taught music appreciation for a number of years when I when I had my first college teaching job and it was it was challenging. It was very very challenging. You know, like as you said, they weren't particularly interested in the the subject matter. Um, and in in my case, it was a situation where the students had to get an art credit and. The, the easiest class to take was the music appreciation class. So, you know, there was, it was always heavily populated, but, uh, you know, one of the challenges that, that, that I thought was very interesting at the time was I, I made them write a 10 page paper and the number of students that I would have, even like upperclassmen saying, I, you know, I've, I've been in, in college now for four years and I've never had to write a 10 page paper. And I thought something's wrong with the system here. You know, I like, I, you know, a 10 page paper was nothing when I was a student. And, you know, I, I started doing that in high school, you know, it, it was just, it was, it was really funny. And they could, they just couldn't, couldn't believe the audacity of, you know, this, this music appreciation professor asking them to write 10 pages of, of information, you know. What, what, what sort of topic did you set them to write? They could, they could do anything they wanted as long as it was somehow related to classical music. Okay. And, 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 and I asked them to be creative and they, you know, they, they would have to um, submit topics, but you know, I was really not very strict in terms of, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. It was, it was, I just wanted them to like actually investigate and think about something and, and maybe explore something having to do with classical music, you know. At Stanford, uh, uh, part of what you do is you know, you're a TA in various classes, teaching assistants. And I, I did uh, one with a piano concerto. Um, and uh, the, the students would go to the various uh, recitals on campus. And um, they were doing the Emperor Concerto and they were writing papers. And I was, I was reading these papers and that beautiful slow movement. Uh, somebody was, uh, and you couldn't say she was wrong, said the, <laughs> that those falling, those arpeggios that come down. It sounds like violets being tossed from heaven above to the mortals below. Something. Oh my like goodness! A purple prose, you know. <laughs> I've never been able to listen to the American Journal without thinking of flowers coming down. <laughs> so oh. you're so you're at Stanford and you're teaching uh, teaching music appreciation there and, and or no that was in Menlo. Sorry, you're, you're Menlo. Right. And uh, yeah, that 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 lasted really uh, um, until um, well, really until uh, two thousand. So okay. Uh, and were you teaching guitar there at the same time? Yes, yes, I had private okay. uh, lessons. I had a couple of very good students. There was a fellow from uh, Singapore who 
Uh, I still correspond with Hiki uh, Yong, his name, uh, very good guitarist. He had to go back and serve uh, with military service in uh, Singapore. Oh right, right. But, um, um, yes, I, I, I did that. Um, and I also went on the road for a, a, a year. Um, and uh, that, that didn't work out. I, I'm a homebody. <laughs> I'm a homebody. So when I leave, uh, and I um, I got involved with the uh, the Lute Society of America. Uh, okay. So my my first lute teacher was a fellow by the name of Stanley Butens. Uh, okay. Who is? Um, I've, I've seen additions. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, okay, you, you know who uh, who he is. Um, and uh, so um, I, uh, I he got me involved with the the Lute Society, and I wound up being their uh, uh, the, the editor of their journal. I, okay. I did. I did their their journal, and uh, that's that's how I was sent to the uh, when I went to the Guitar Foundation of America. It was I was known as the representative from the Lute Society. Oh, there we go. Okay, <laughs> so you, you brought a certain credibility to the organization. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was credit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and Julian Bream was known as a loop player at that time, and there were right. there were there, there were uh, there were others as well. But he, he was the one that was most uh, uh, prominent. And of course, while I was uh, working with them, I, I got to uh, meet some of the people who later on went to be um, prominent lutenists. Uh, Paul Odette, who was at school in um, West Virginia, kept writing me letters um, looking for uh, uh, music. Yeah, okay. Uh, I was uh, a prominent lutenist, um, and at their festivals, um, I was I was once roomed with Hopkinson Smith. Oh my! And uh, one of the perks there, sharing a room with him, um, he was com just coming out with his uh, uh, Robert Devise recording okay. on Sea Orbo. He had this big. That's mainly what uh, Devise was. Principally known as a, was a yes. theorist, not a guitarist. So uh, I'm, I'm tired at the end of the day, and he says, "I hope you don't mind if I practice a little over here in the corner." <laughs> and there I am falling asleep to the this beautiful sound of this Pasquale oh, he's working on. You know, that's one of the perks. Oh, <laughs> You're lulled to sleep by the sky. It's just the perfect music for that. <laughs> There's this Gavant Rondeau that's, that's just this heavenly piece. I love it to this day. And it's on his recording, so I've, yeah. I've played it uh, a number of times. So that's that's one of the perks of the uh, <laughs> of a trade like that, and I didn't have to pay for it, you know. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, like a private concert from Hoppy. That's yeah, that would be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there have been other things like that. So I uh, I was there in, uh, and the Guitar Foundation of America was founded in Santa Barbara. Okay. On, on they had the whose idea was it? Who 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 was the first person that said, you know, I think we should do this. Now, the reason why it was in Santa Barbara is because Tom Heck, who I really think of as the founder, okay. uh, his, wife, his wife was from there and he All had right. a place to stay. So uh, my wife's family was from there. Too. My mother had passed away. My wife's family was there. So uh, um, my in-laws, so I could, st I could stay there. Right. And I, 
I had my two small children I was responsible for half time. So I only went, only went to half of the convention, but I got to meet all of these guitarists that came out of the wood, woodwork, you know, uh, people like Safi's Pappas were there. Yeah. And uh, Mata Alcott Bickford was there. Oh, my. And I think Fred Node was there. Ron okay. Castell was there. Um, oh, I can't remember all, all who was there. Um, but um, it was... Uh, it was interesting. And it came up with a, a charter, and uh, uh, how can we have annual conventions from people from were from all over the uh, all over the, the the world? I think yeah. people came to Santa Barbara because it was a, a, you know a nice resort town by that sure. time. <laughs> it was a nice place to spend your summer vacations. So they came down there. So it, it took a while for that uh, organization to, to to get off the ground. And then and they started having the competitions. Um, and then they started to get uh, people that would actually come up from abroad to the, uh, the right. competitions. And then they started to get prize money that they could actually give people. And, right. and the concert tour and the, um, the Nexus record uh, contract, which was a big, big draw. Yeah. And... Uh, now that thing has become big time. It's, uh, it, it really is. It's. I think it's the biggest. I think it's the one that that people. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. There was there was uh some there were a couple of times where that thing almost uh, collapsed <laughs> on itself. You know, uh, but uh, can we get enough talent to these enter um, to make it legitimate? Right. And, and fortunately, there were always uh, at least three or four. Sure. And I'm sure they accepted more people than really were were there just because they needed the entrance money. <laughs> <laughs> and the rationale was it was it was a good learning experience. Sure. And I think for most people it is. You, you know, you're stepping yourself. Um, and, and then when you get the set piece, uh, the, the composition written for the piece, uh, right. that that sort of separates the men from the boys and the sure. women from the girls. You know. <laughs> those pieces don't mess around right oh yeah yeah so it became oh, quite I, a, I remember the year a, that the, the, the jason vio won i was at school with him at cleveland um and they sent the the the, the, the um what was the, the variations on a moldavian aura um oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and it was it's that's ian kraus right am i remembering that correctly yes I, yeah and yeah. And it, like pe people just really were quite intimidated by that piece. And, and I just, I, I remember a, a number of people that I knew um, who were planning on going to the competition that year uh, didn't because of that piece. <laughs> I, I think that is, uh, yes, intimidating things like yeah. that. So um, if, you, uh, if you serve on a jury uh, and they're, they're, there are two kinds of juries. There is the preliminary jury where you have to right. sit through uh, maybe a group of 10. And then there's the finals. Right. Um, it, preliminaries t tend to be uh, rather taxing. Uh, right. you know, they're, uh, they have no glory. They're behind, <laughs> they're behind the scenes. It's, it's denying you from doing anything else. You know, at that, that time, you can't go to this concert. You can't go to that lecture because you're stuck in some room. 
our next intendant will be. <laughs> looking around. Um, but uh, it's listening to the same repertoire over and over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if there's a required piece, I think I sort of dump that for just that reason. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the set piece. Um, and the first couple of times you hear it, uh, you're not familiar with it. Uh, and I don't know whether that does the performer an advantage or a disadvantage. Uh, <laughs> because consistent number two usually plays it quite differently than one, which right. in a way is good. You know, everything's, <laughs> there's not a definitive. But by the time you've heard it eight times, if you're competent, uh, you, you know this piece very well. You can play it yourself. <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know. So by the time you get to the finals and you go in there, uh, you, you hear that, um, uh, and, and usually when you're doing these, these preliminaries, you know right off the bat after two minutes. Uh, right. Whether they're, whether they're going, you give them their whole time, obviously. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, they run out of time. But um, it, it's usually not that uh, not difficult to, to sort the really good from the just sure. good. And then there's the great. And every once in a while, there's the off the charts. Yeah. But these last couple of competitions that have been on Zoom, Everybody's been off the charts. It's there's been yeah. I, I can't I can't even begin to understand the level of play that's happening, especially with 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 the younger players. You know, seeing some of the junior competition, um, thinking you know this twenty years ago professionals didn't play at this level. <laughs> you know, it's 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 really something else. So what what do you think? How has that happened? Do do you think that we've just finally gotten to a point where there are enough people teaching young people? And the pedagogy's established. I mean, how what what's your take on that? You've seen a lot, so I think you put your finger on it by saying pedagogy yeah. has uh, improved, uh, teaching has improved. Um, of course, to get to that level of skill, you've got to devote a lot of time to it. Of course. Uh, so these are committed players who are playing hours a day. And they're really devoting a lot of their time to a, um, a, a skill set. But the same true with professional golfers or uh, sure uh, or tennis players that they go out there right. and they do it four hours a day uh, yeah. just, just to keep up their their skill level. Right. So uh, it, it's 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 the same. And actually, in a, in a way, playing a musical instrument is akin to a sport. It's you're, sure you're working Absolutely. on your digital exercises you know <laughs> your bat swing or if you're a singer you're working on your breath control and right. your armature and uh, that, that sort of thing uh, uh, trumpet players um, you know got to keep those lips going right <laughs> read players you're also all about the reads <laughs> do you think that's something that's that's newer for the guitar world though i mean when you know back in the early days of the gfa did you know of people that were were practicing like that Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so that's not a, that's not something new. Yeah. Oh no, there were there were people who were very very dedicated. Uh, yeah. That's uh, that's true. Uh, their 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 playing was good, but maybe they were not as uh, challenged as uh, they are now. But when oh people wanted to to start playing barrios, say uh, 
right. people start really, uh, I got to learn to play La Cathedral, you know, just right. run. So um, you can't do Asturias forever. Uh, and then things like the Henestera <laughs> uh, Sonata show up, sure. you know. Uh, okay, this is sort of moving the uh, the needle a little farther up. Yeah. And, and Brower started doing that, that, that sort of thing too. So uh, I think the, the repertoire uh, in sort of encourages or nudges people forward. Oh, sure. I want to be able to play this. And right. if it's if it's a medium um, repertoire, you know, you can just sort of sight read some of that that right. stuff. Not with heart, but uh, right. you know, it, it's not the challenge. So you, you don't really uh, find fine tune it. Sure. You can go back and play those um, cost studies, say, uh, and uh, play them with some some feeling more than just sort of uh, a warm up exercise. Yeah. Sure. And of course, that's what a, a lot of recitalists do. They, they, they warm up playing these sorts of things. Yeah, sure. So you, you, you were there at the, at the inception of the, the, the GFA. And as I, as I mentioned before, I, you know, your name to me is always in my head as editor of, of Soundboard. So um, was, that, was that your initial function in the GFA or did they, was, was that no, something you talked into later? That was quite a ways, <laughs> quite a ways down the, uh, the line. I, I took it over from Jim Forrest. Okay, that's right. Okay. Uh, Jim Forrest uh, had gotten a dedicated uh, uh, word processor. Uh, this was predecessor to the computer. And... He was churning out all these uh, these these things, so he became the um, he became the editor, and he did layout for a, a long time, even afterwards. And he needed help because he was also the general manager of the uh, the GFA. He kept the books, you okay. know. He was doing all this stuff, and he's uh, somebody who's a workaholic. He's, I guess so. He really is, uh, <laughs> into this. And so I was, I was uh, giving him a helping hand. I had a, a, a computer by then. Uh, so I was doing some type setting, uh, well, typing for him. Um, okay. So just, uh, you know, these things would come in and they had, they had to be typed into some sort of a, a printable form. So I, right. I started doing some of that. And he needed, uh, he needed uh, copy material. When you're an editor, part of the job... Actually, the hardest job is to get people to write things for you. <laughs> so uh, I started writing things for him. And, and what do you write about? And uh, it, it was that time in 1975, um, the, Amer the U.S. was about to uh, celebrate its uh, bicentennial right. in, in 1976. Right. So in 1975... Um, I find myself in Cleveland, Ohio, mm. at a, an ASTA convention. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in Cleveland. And somebody tipped me off that there's an old music store on Euclid Avenue. And they got all this old abandoned music down in the, in the basement of this place. And maybe they got some guitar music down there. And I was... Uh, feeling kind of sorry that the that, you know we don't the United States didn't have any music to contribute to the bicentennial 
huh. from the 19th century because there yeah. wasn't any. Uh, and, and record al companies were coming out with Gottschalk recordings and uh, uh, Scott Joplin and Arthur Foote and uh, you know right. all the uh, all these early American um, musicians. And there was no guitar music. And my thinking was it's because none of it was written down right. from from the 19th century. And how the earliest were. stuff are, are the field recordings uh, from uh, the Mississippi Delta? You know. Right. Uh, that that sort of thing. So anyway, if there's a guitar music down in this basement, so we go down there, and the ceiling's got all these old abandoned uh, brass instruments from the time when you know there was a a, a a band, a brass band in every town in Hamlet in America. Seventy six right. trombone stuff. Every town had a brass band. Nobody has a brass band anymore. Right. <laughs> Here we're just the uh, and on the floor there's just piles of music. You know, all the accordion music and uh, there's there's old ukulele stuff and uh, um, there were, you know, song hits from the 1970s and just sort of like a uh, archaeological dig. And way down on the bottom, I find this thing, guitarist albums, you know, guitarist folio, I think. And okay. it had a copyright date of 1898. Oh so my. here was something from before the age of recorded sound. Right. And notation is the only way to keep music from the past alive. Yes. And it's an oral tradition that moves it to, down the line, right? Right. So we don't really know what 18th century music sounds like because there's, uh, you know. No recordings. There are no recordings. The only way we know what it sounds like is because of musical literacy that, uh, that and then, of course, that encourages certain kinds of music. Right. Um, it's very hard to notate, say, flamenco. Right. You, you know, because, and uh, all, all the ornamentation that goes on to renditions of the Star Spangled Banner when it's done in <laughs> all, you know, very hard to notate some of this stuff. So, so it does tend to encourage a certain squareness of, of, of rhythm and things like that. So anyway, here's this, here's this gavotte from 1898. And, oh, well, it's not really interesting music, but sociologically, uh, you know, who played this and uh, what sure. were they doing with it? You know, yeah. this, this doesn't sound like the singing cowboy kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> and then there's there's more. And uh, so I, I, so Paul Cox and I came back with a, a, a pile of stuff and uh, I started inquiring about this. And I discovered that the Vada Bickford had rooms full of this stuff, you know, uh, I just knew her casually, but right. um, she was a she was the parlor guitar lady, and she lived that kind of Victorian life to her her, her dying day, and she yeah. never threw anything out. So she <laughs> she had thousands and thousands of pieces of uh, of music. She corresponded with with everybody. So I was able to get together some of this stuff to put out an anthology uh, okay. which was very badly produced it was <laughs> embarrassed but, but at least it was there uh, so i i, I wrote uh, an article for uh, uh to put in soundboard from for jim forrest and uh people read that and said oh that's kind of interesting stuff and so there have been people who have sort of picked up on that um they, uh, uh, Noonan and uh, uh -huh. Doug Back. Doug Back, right. And a couple of others, uh, really, I can't remember. And, and the scholarship is uh, really, really picked up. 
people yeah. have written about Martin guitars very uh, intelligently this way. I can't think of the guy's name, but um, anyway, that's old age. <laughs> I had my senior moment. But um, anyway, that uh, it got me in touch with people, and people started sending me Xeroxes of all this stuff. So I have all this uh, all this material, right? And uh, uh, it is dated. Uh, it's it's uh, stuff that most people are not terribly interesting uh, interested in, particularly in this day of diversity, right. uh, because it was aimed for a uh, a racially privileged audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was usually young, middle-class women um, who needed an accomplishment before they had a husband. So this was nice and genteel. And it was part of the whole banjo-mandolin orchestra phenomenon, which was was big um, at the time. So um, I guess the guitar wound up being kind of the second fiddle to uh, most of those banjos and (laughs) mandolins. But um, it, it had its solo repertoire, and it's 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 interesting. It's genteel, and every once in a while, there's a uh, there's a decent piece, right. but not a not a great piece. Sure, you know? sure. Now we have great pieces, yeah. and uh, well, it's it's well, it's interesting to me, and and it, I find that not just with this segment of the repertoire, but there there are pockets of the repertoire that. You know, it's almost like you you discovered a hundred years later that this this repertoire even existed just through an accidental happenstance in the basement of a, a music store in Cleveland. But there's this there's this idea that that things just didn't happen. Like you, your idea was it just didn't exist. Um, and and I think that's it's it's really strange. And I, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know if that if that's something that other instrumentalists suffer from is 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 um, as much as guitarists tend to, you know, and, and I think when you start, it doesn't take much to you start digging into the repertoire a little bit and you realize that, you know, it's, it, it's this com- continuous unbroken thread, you know, that st- stretches back into the 17th century at least, you know, and, and it's not like the guitar never disappeared and came back. It was never resurrected. It, it was always there. It's just people's collective memory is what falters, you know. Well, things get overlooked. Same with the, the Spanish repertoire. You know, you go from Sor to Guado. Okay, who comes next? Terrigan. No, no. <laughs> so who's in? Who, there are people in between. The people yeah. haven't really um, Arcas and Thomas yeah. uh, Damas, and I think a guy who needs to be looked at more, Antonio Cano. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, these were these were guitarists uh, in the mid nineteenth um, century. Right. And they weren't talked about. It just went from Aguado to Tariga. Why and, do you think that, why do you think that all, is, Peter? I said Germans all get overlooked. Uh, it took a really? long time. Oh, my gosh. Something like Mertz yeah. uh, and um, Wenceslas Malenka. There is there's right. some. Right, right, right. Yeah, sure. And Adam Dar and those, those kinds of yeah. people. Uh, I think it's partly because the players uh, were not historians. Okay. Also, uh, access to the material may not have been uh, easy. Sequestered away in libraries that are very reluctant sure. to let people look at them. Right. Um, you must remember before the uh, age of the internet, doing research was quite difficult. 
Right. It was usually through you things had like to go cards, to where the stuff card, was, yeah. Or through card catalogs or through correspondence. Right. You know, you wrote somebody said, Do you know anything about this? Or do you can you get your hands on something like that? Right. So yes, basically you had to go there and ask permission to uh, mm -hmm. go look at it, which you didn't always get. Right. Like that year I was in England. I don't know where we went over that, but I uh, I, I got a, uh, I, I got a grant to some money to, go, to spend a year doing research for my dissertation in England. And uh, there was a manuscript up at uh, the Pepys Library in Cambridge okay. that I wanted to see. It, it pertained to the subject I was writing on, which had nothing to do with music, uh, had to do with the English Reformation. Anyway, I took the train up to uh, Cambridge one day. That cost money. I had to get myself lunch, and I went and knocked on the door of Bodlin Library, um, where the Peeps Library is. And the librarian came to the door and said, may I see manuscripts so-and-so and so-and-so, and, so, and showed my uh, letter of introduction. And the librarian said, certainly, write me a letter. Oh, my. <laughs> I, mean, I, can't, I can't see it. Uh, uh, yes, I'll let you see it. Write me a letter. Uh, we're open uh, these days. So I took the train back to London. Mm -hmm. I wrote him a letter. And I sent it in, in the mail. He came back. Certainly, love to see you. Please come. Right. So this time my wife <laughs> went with me. <laughs> so I went up there. I, I knocked on the door. I showed him the letter. He let me in. He couldn't have been nicer. He actually showed me Peeps's original library um, uh, oh diary, my. you know, written in the code. Anything else yeah, you want yeah. to look at when you're here? And uh, it's a small library because it was uh, Samuel Peeps's personal library. But this thing, push me look at it. Write me a letter. <laughs> you know, they, they can be stuffy that way. <laughs> wow. That's, now, that's... Now, now, now it's all now it's all online. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. And, and, and so you, you were, you basically took over the, the um, editorship to help Jim I, out. I, I became the editor. I think it was in 1980. I should have done my homework. <laughs> anyway, I, I did it for 12 years. Okay. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I basically did the typing myself. I didn't do the, the do the layout. That was done in Los Angeles. I was I would okay. say done electronically, and I had no control over. There was one issue that actually got 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 lost. Huh. It, it was not picked up from the printer's um, loading dock, so um, most of the uh, most of them just got dumped after, <laughs> after a couple of weeks. When they were picked up, they they just scrapped them. So, oh my gosh! I don't know if I have that. Issue around here. They sent me five, so I get I gave one the five the only five copies of that <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but uh, I I gave that up uh, when my wife became terminally ill. She had uh, uh, breast cancer and she was in hospice, and uh, you know had to debut. I, I this was coming up, and I I, I couldn't. So I just um, and. Uh, San Antonio, and I, I got uh, Richard Long to take over. Right. Okay. And, uh, he's the one that really, um, really got it to fly, and uh, 
Well, I, I don't know. I think I think you've had some wings on that bird too. <laughs> there, there was a. Um, this is something that um, the advertisers uh, had a hand in. Uh, they wanted to have more color ads. Okay. And we were using uh, we were using flat paper, um, the, the coarse paper that that doesn't take color well. So they right. went over to a glossy uh, paper. And the reason that they went over for that was primarily for advertising, so they can have interesting color, okay color sure. ads because um, there was there, yeah printing color on uh, newsprint is a totally different process than and doing high red lithography uh, right so doing it on on coated paper is is much easier so that's that's the way they, they went and that that started in Richard Bong's day. Uh, his wife, Mary, was a professional uh, layout designer. And unfortunately, she died uh, soon after he took over. That was, that was oh. great. And she was a charming woman. And um, so uh, we would always sit in the corner having wine and smoking. We were all smokers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was I was a pipe smoker for fifty years myself. So, uh, oh my! <laughs> I gave it up when I was sent to the hospital for an operation, and they, uh, I knew they weren't going to let me smoke in there. So I just called, quit cold turkey and uh, saved myself some money in the bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so you can still carry the pipe; you just don't have to smoke it. You know, you can still look very distinguished. Stage. <laughs> <laughs> Back of that music, so, thing. I think I see some. Uh, yeah, those are all music books, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can see the the, the New Grove prominently displayed there. That's uh, I, I noticed. Yeah. That. I've been trying to read read the, uh, the, <laughs> the music on the music stand, and all I can see is the word compositions. <laughs> backwards. Oh, yeah, I got this out. I'm, I'm, um, Soundboard Scholar is going to come out with an issue that's going to have my collected uh, Americana in it. Okay. And I was um, writing a preface for that and, and it sort of, you know, how I got into this uh, business. Sure. So I've been thinking about this for, for a while. And I went back to that pile of music that I got in Cleveland. I still, still have that. It's been added to. And one of the pieces um, I wish I had been able to talk about more, where are the women? Right. Uh, there are there are a few, and there this this piece here came from the Cleveland basement. That's it. Oh my uh, gosh! Choice compositions for guitar by Myra Marie Cobb. Uh, this is um, huh. published in Cleveland in the right date, eighteen ninety six. Okay. Uh, a dream of home waltz, two guitars, and oh it's, my goodness. it's a, it's uh, it, uh, the trio charming. Look, the, the trio looks, uh, yeah, that's quite. Uh, look at all those octaves. That looks fairly challenging. <laughs> so I, I would have included this in my anthology if I could find anything to say about Myra Marie Cobb. I didn't know. Right. I didn't know. Anything about her? Or C C O B B Cobb. It's going to be backwards, but uh, see, see that? 
No, I could, I could see just the very top of the page. <laughs> oh, there we go. Myra, okay, yeah. And you, no information on this composer at all, huh? I, nothing at that. However, now you can go online, and I have found that someone has written a dissertation uh, at Florida State that has an entire section about Myra Marie Cobb. My goodness. Uh, uh, she started uh, a guitar studio in Boston, I, shortly after the Civil War, I guess. Uh, she got married to someone named Cobb. Uh, around 1890, I'm going on memory now, around 1890, she, for some reason, moved from Boston to Cleveland. Okay. And had, a, had a studio there. Uh, she, died in, she died in the year 1900. And she was a teacher of the banjo and the guitar. And uh, there is a, an engraving of, him, her, of her somewhere. She looks like quite a formidable lady. But uh, <laughs> anyway, this um, this dissertation out of Florida State, I I just can bring it up on my computer. Of course, you know, yeah. This information is uh, uh, is there. Your fingertips, yeah. And birth and death dates. I had no I know little about her, but I I, I now seen the catalog of music that she. She wrote for mandolin orchestra, a list of guitar solos. There's another list in Boston. But here, here's this, this, this uh, some, some way to put her in context. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. And you mentioned Vada Oka Bitford, who you actually knew. I, uh, yes, yes, I met her uh, on, on a number of occasions. Yeah. And she would reminisce about the good old days. And uh, her teacher, Rare. And uh, how um, Romero stole half of his music. She was full of these kind of what? Stories. Really? Yeah. And I wish I'd had a tape recorder there. <laughs> Ron, I was staying with Ron Purcell, um, okay. who lived in Sherman Oaks, California, yeah. the San Joaquin Valley. You know where that is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I was I was staying there and. He took me to a meeting of the American Guitar Society, which which he started in 1923 right. about a victory. Um, that's why the GFA is not the American Guitar Society, because that still exists. <laughs> <laughs> it is a local uh, group in, in uh, Southern California, okay. uh, 400 miles south of here. So, uh, you know, California is a big state. Yeah. So that's why I was staying with him. <laughs> I couldn't come home. But... Um, he took me to this meeting of the American Guitar Society, and she was there. She was quite an old uh, woman at that time. And we went back to the car uh, in the parking lot, um, and uh, she, she just was standing there by the um, car door, and she started talking. And she started talking about her, um, uh, well, she, she was a spiritualist. And she told the really story that, about yeah. When she was a child, she was um, uh, had outgrown the Los Angeles guitar teacher, and she was being sent up to uh, study with um, uh, what was his name? Ferrer. Who is I can't think. Of, in San Francisco. Manuel. In, Manuel Ferrer. I guess, it, I, guess it, yeah. I guess it was, I guess it was um, in San Francisco. Okay. And uh, this would have been around 1903. Okay. She was going to live, she was, her parents were entrusting her to live with her teacher. In, oh my gosh. He lived in, uh, he lived in San Francisco. 
And there were two ways to get to San Francisco in those days. One is to take the train and the other is to take the boat. Sure. So uh, you could take a, a, an overnight and either way. Uh, she had a train ticket and, and the night before she had a premonition. She was going to take the boat. There was something bad about the uh, bad about the train. Huh. She took the boat and there was a fatal train wreck. Oh, my. You know, it was this is sort of there was she was a. Uh, this was preordained. So she had this. this she told this story with a, a very straight face. And, and you know, it, it, it happened, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you, you change your you change your mind and you save your life. Right. <laughs> so that, that was that was one uh, one story uh, she told. And there were a number of others which I have forgotten because this would have been. <laughs> this would have been, oh, 40 years ago. Sure. Amazing. So, so is there is there anybody that uh, I mean, I know you you've you must have at most at some point in time met most of everybody. Is there anybody that you said that, that you haven't met yet? Any any big person in the in the guitar world that you have yet to meet that you're really dying to meet? You know, the guitar world has changed so so it much. It has. Um, yeah. Uh, it used to be possible to know everybody. That's what I always thought. You know, like every, everybody knew who the who the top players were, and you could actually know these people. And now there's just so many, and it's impossible. I, yeah, I'd like to meet some of the winners of these guitar competitions. That's who. Right? <laughs> um, uh, that South Korean uh, girl who I understand studied uh, at Juilliard with uh, Sharon Isbin. Um, I can't think of her name. Um, Gigi. Is that it? Yes, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do remember the time I, I met Yama, Yamashita. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yamashita. Uh, that was in Lubbock, Texas, of all places. Okay. And uh, he played his um, pictures at an exhibition there, which I thought was, you know, um, how could anybody do, do that? <laughs> uh, well, it was... You know, it was, it was ragged but right. Let's put it that yeah. way. It, it was, was audacious. Uh, <laughs> it looked like a little porcelain doll up there because they were yeah. very young. And the, uh, the the hotel we were staying in was miles from the campus of uh, Texas A and M. So we uh, we took a bus, and I got on the bus, and who was sitting right next to me? Ah. Former. Fantastic. Didn't speak any English, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I said, "Very good." <laughs> you know, his hands still seem to have only five fingers on each. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that, that was an, an interesting encounter. <laughs> oh, and there was a the time I I played um, chauffeur for um, Andre Segovia. Oh, why? Uh, this was at USC, which I have okay. to remember is not University of South Carolina, but University right. of Southern California. <laughs> um, he, he gave his last um, celebrated master class there. Yes, of course. And I was I was involved in that. I had to give a, a lecture. And uh, what was, did you lecture on? Uh, Segovia as a transcriber. Okay. That was that uh, was the 
So we were looking at various editions of Leyunda Asterias. And that's uh, sure. Uh, I had the uh, audacity to say that Segovia's was not the greatest. Somebody took oh, me to ask for it. <laughs> oh my gosh, you said that at the Segovia Masterclass? Oh, you iconoclast. <laughs> well, his was, his was done, you know, the 1920s. You yeah. know, so he has every... every and it also... Suspiciously, a lot like the Daniel Fortea transcription, if you ask me. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that story too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It looks a lot more like Daniel Fortea than it does uh, Isaac Albanis. <laughs> and uh, don't forget your bet. Oh, be true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he knew. He knew Granadas, and he had uh, he had those uh, transcriptions of the, the uh, Spanish dances sure, before, sure. before Segovia had yeah. them, and uh, he wouldn't hand them over. That was the, <laughs> that was the, uh, that was a probably a, a story in there somewhere. But anyway, it's the uh, it's it's the end of uh, some session. Segovia is quite quite tired, and somebody I think it was Ron Purcell. Could you take the maestro back to his hotel. This was at uh, on the campus at USC. Uh, he was staying at the Beverly Wilshire. Of course. I, I, and I, I think I was the only person around with a car. So, uh, uh, he and his attendant got in the back seat. Uh, he was, you know, an old man at that time. He yeah. Was with a uh, with a companion, um, a gentleman, and they spoke in Spanish the whole way. And uh, I got to the hotel. Uh, he didn't say a word to me. Oh, not even gracias. Gracias. Oh, I did. I did act as a, as chauffeur, and he didn't give me a tip. <laughs> <laughs> did Did you get a photo with him though? Because everybody had a Segovia photo for a while. That was like the big thing. I did. I do not have a, a photo. <laughs> I didn't take cameras with me. <laughs> so here, here's so my question. So with simple, the camera's right on your phone. Right. You know? <laughs> That's true. So was, you, was your chauffeur experience for Segovia, was that before or after your lecture? Well, he wasn't at the lecture. <laughs> I believe it was after. Okay. Well, the only reason I knew you... about that was... Um, Reminiscing in the, uh, in the in the concourse or the foyer, and afterwards somebody came up to me and said, "How dare you say something about the maestro like that?" Oh my! Yeah, and that was you know an ardent ardent fan. You know, I, I wasn't being all that critical. I was right. just making, <laughs> I was just making a point. I had I had slides of about ten different uh, ten different editions sure. of the. Uh, sure. And I have one beauty, the Japanese edition, which was ob- obviously uh, stripped in because the stems are in the wrong order. Oh my! Huh. Line line four is where line three ought to be, and vice versa. How did that happen? It, that's that's the old script and pastes. Uh, oh, okay. Thing. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to do that as an undergraduate uh, orchestra parts. You know, you'd have the, you'd have uh, uh, copies of the full score. Yeah, and you would you'd cut out all the first violin parts and paste right. them on, 
in order of <laughs> you know, the clarinet parts, picks them up. And uh, let's see, where are we now? We're down to the second horn. Is uh, it's easy to get mixed up. <laughs> Every, everything everything was more difficult then. It's it's amazing that anybody got anything done at all. <laughs> so uh, the orchestra parts, uh, um, that was one thing at Stanford that, uh, that's another story it's, I, I find it, uh, interesting. Um, there are not many roles for guitars. Uh, of course. Um, uh, standard repertoire. But they did put on a performance of... Uh, uh, Falstaff. Okay. Verity's Falstaff. Yeah. And there is a guitar part. There is. Part. Yeah. And uh, the the parts came from uh, New York, um, and pr pr probably recording, but they they were they were the, the parts. You rent the parts. Right. And I I had the sheet of paper which was the guitar part. First oh. act tacit. Third act tacit. The second act. You know, <laughs> 287 measures of rest. No, it's actually towards the beginning. And then, then there's the, the music. Well, the interesting thing is that Verity didn't know the guitar well. Right. And there are impossibility uh, <laughs> there uh, chords that just the texture are unplayable, you know. Sure. And in the margin, in pencil and in colored uh, pencil, this are all generations of uh, guitarists uh, attempts to um, solve this problem. Fantastic. And, and these are these are probably professional guitarists, you know, sure. by the name of uh, Matthews, who was the guitarist at the Metropolitan Opera. And uh, he's probably in there. So um, I wish I had taken a photograph of that. You know, that, that was <laughs> a- Quite a record, yeah. <laughs> and there are, oh, there are dozens of, uh, yeah, there were maybe two dozen uh, little annotations or oh notes in, in the margin of, of, of the guitar part of the <laughs> of well, there's, a, there's a dissertation. <laughs> no, you know, track down those band, those, I don't even know if they have orchestra parts anymore. <laughs> they probably just uh, get, the, get it off the uh, computer screen and, uh, you know. <laughs> Go, go from there. Wow. So Amazing. more and more people are reading off of iPads. And not sure. Yeah. I, I, I haven't been able to do that yet. I, I just can't make the jump. I, I really, I like paper. I like pencil. I like, I like that tactile part of it. I, I can't even read books on, on tablets. I have to, I have to be holding the thing. So. I would, I would do Carl. <laughs> we often say I am a, a analog guy operating in the digital yeah. world. And yeah, it seems seems it seems more and more so like that every day. <laughs> so let's see what else. What what's so you mentioned before we started talking? I think you had you had dropped the name of John Holmquist, and he was my teacher. And I wonder if you have any stories about John. I'm sorry, I do not have any oh, stories. Oh, darn. <laughs> did you, did you know him? Did you meet him? He was a member of the board. And yes. I, I remember him as a very thoughtful gentleman. Yeah. Um, was, he, was he the... Uh, no, I don't think he was ever the, uh, the, the chairman of the board. Um, the, the board met at these events, and it was... Uh, 
difficulty finding time for there to be a meeting. You know, everybody right. would either be involved in the master class or right. you know, adjudicating um, or there'd be a lunch or this. So getting everybody to sit down together in the same <laughs> room and have a discussion. And it was really an advisory um, group because they, uh, they could only meet a couple times a year. So there was an executive committee that really did the uh, the work, and they, they were in they were in Los Angeles Basin, and they they right. met in person. Um, so we were more an advisory board, and eventually it became known as the executive committee. So um, I can't remember the two occasions even where uh, John Holmquist, but I'm having trouble with with some of the others too. Jeffrey Bam. Uh, uh-huh. Um, was John's teacher, and I, I worked with Jeff for about 20 years at the summer workshop at the University of Cincinnati with Claire Callahan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jeff was, it was very interesting because when I was studying with John, John would always talk about Jeff Van's sound, like he had this amazing sound. And, and of course, as, as a student, you think, oh, you know, everybody admires their, their teachers. He must just, you know. That's that's what's going on there. And then I, I got the opportunity to work with Jeff in Cincinnati. And the first time I heard him play, I thought, oh, my gosh, John wasn't kidding. This man has a beautiful sound. And it was, you know, it was a real pleasure to, to, to kind of get to work with my my pedagogical grandfather, as it were, you know, and, and, and play with him and do those things. And, and it was it was fantastic. It was really, really great. Um, and then you also mentioned the Segovia Masterclass in 1986. One of the performers in that was Christopher Berg. Who was my teacher for undergraduate? Yes, and he yes. he had he had some some really interesting tales to tell about that experience. And I guess I mean he wasn't he wasn't that old. He was he was probably in his his lower tw- like maybe mid twenties at the time. He was it was pretty pretty early off for him as well. Um, so I wonder if uh, if you have any stories about Christopher Berg. <laughs> Uh, I just remember uh, he was in charge of the um, con- convention in Charleston, as I recall. Was he? Uh, okay, uh, uh, I'm probably wrong because he was. He, he. I mean, he's in Columbia. Um, That's why I'm assuming that was he. I, th- I think that was Mark Renier, actually, wasn't it? Now that you now that you mentioned yes mm-hmm. yeah yeah but I'm sure I'm sure Christopher was was really involved you know just being yeah. being down so, the road a bit so that's that's a part of this interview to cut out <laughs> <laughs> no it's 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 a tell all interview it's it's everything everything gets gets shown here <laughs> okay well <laughs> no it's great it's fantastic so oh, and uh, then it's hard to remember so, some people really uh, really. Uh, uh, Step out. Um, <laughs> uh, somebody like um, Jack Duart, for example. Yeah. And Alice and Claire, they uh, sure they really they really stand out. Yeah. Um, I need I need to get Alice on on the show. I think I need I think I need to talk to her. I think that would be that would be a, another interesting uh, chat to have. So I've I've been I've been bugging Claire. You know, again, I've known Claire since you know since I came to. Ohio pretty much um and I've, I've been bugging her to get her on because she, I mean talk about somebody who has stories to tell and as, uh, as, an, as an educator she has uh, very yeah. solid um views to uh, yeah 
uh, on that, that subject. Uh, and, and she and she can talk like nobody's business. I remember, you know, we, for her workshop, you know, the initial meeting that was supposed to be 15 minutes long, you know, often was uh, an hour long because she she was just just telling stories, telling her stuff. And it was and nobody, nobody seemed bothered by it. You know, it was always very entertaining. And, you know, probably would people would rather have been doing that than listening to technical exercises anyway. So <laughs> Alice Arts is exactly the same way. Is she the same? Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> talking in has good stories to tell. And uh, when you get those two together, uh, it's getting down to business was the, uh, what, <laughs> what the issue. <laughs> I, I would love to, I would actually love to make that happen. I think, I think, I think I need to do that. I think I, think I need to get them both on the show at the same time. That would be amazing. <laughs> and Michael and Joanne. Uh, um, oh, sure. Uh, Kachani and yeah. Peter, uh, I remember them. Uh, and of course, she was never a, a member of the board, the uh, inevitable Matanya Ophie. Of course. Yeah. So Matanya was a, was a dear friend of mine. He was, um, when I first moved to Columbus, he had just set up his, his operations outside of his home for the first time. You know, he had, he had rented this space in a, in a warehouse building that had at one point in time been a chicken storage facility. <laughs> and there were places in that building where you, where you would go and there was just the strangest aroma. And I, I pretty much, Decided at that time, if I ever have to work in a chick, chicken facility, um, I, I, yeah, it was, it was the strangest smell, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it was definitely there. But he had, he had all of his, all of his stuff up in, in, on another floor in this one room, and I just remember when I was working for him, and he'd be writing one of his typically, you know, argumentative articles for something or another, you know, and, and he would need a, a particular art, article or a particular piece of music or something. He knew he could tell me exactly what box, you know, something was in. He'd be like, "Okay, I need this. I need this article on Villalobos from Guitar Review 1970, whatever, and it's going to be in the third row down on in the corner, like two boxes from the top." You know, it, it was amazing, and he he would do this over and over and over again. He knew exactly where to find everything, and this was not a small collection of of, of stuff, you know. Um, but it was, oh, he, it was had, he had a affordable collection. There was no, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and he was is, as, as irascible as he was, he was also just a big teddy bear of a man and, and so very I, sweet. I got and, on and well with so him. So generous. So generous lots, to, to me. There were lots of people who had, had feuds with him, yeah. but uh, uh, I got on well with him. Uh, yeah. He was a good dinner companion. I usually, oh, he's amazing. I, I usually get a cigar out of him afterwards. <laughs> uh, and his second wife, Margarita Mestro, she's uh, uh -huh. a, a delightful woman. Uh, she's and wonderful. A, and a, a real scholar. She, she oh, is yeah. a, a first rate scholar. Uh, I think Belarusian folklore was what her, her specialty. Mm -hmm. But uh, the last the last time I, I saw her, we had a, a pretty lengthy conversation on some of the work that she had been doing um with Stravinsky and Lenos and, yes. and finding, oh, oh, she, finding uh, Russian folk folk uh, influences in Lenos and, and that, that uh, is she got a special prize for, uh, for, for that I, I I know that I've read the piece you're, you're talking about it was, it okay. was at Jams the Journal of the American Music right. so she got a special uh, prize uh, on, on that so 
I had to go back and listen to that again. I, I met her at a musicological meeting in San Francisco about uh, 10 years ago. She was, oh, okay. uh, she was there and I, I couldn't really talk to her. She said, my students just to give me a lecture. So she was <laughs> off. But, when, but um, uh, Matanya once told me a story about when he moved from Boston to Columbus that I remember this day that was, uh, I, I find very amusing. <laughs> he was, uh, he was unpacking all this stuff in his garage. Right. I'm, I'm picturing it. Had all this stuff. And I can imagine he had a lot of boxes to unpack. And a neighbor across the street came over, a, a, a very generous person. Can I help you? And, you know, uh, welcome to the neighborhood, all this. Right. They was helping him uh, <laughs> do it. And they, they started talking. And uh, the, the fellow from across the street said, you must be getting excited about the big game. And Matania looked at the game. Well, the neighbors just put down the box, went away, and never talked to him again. <laughs> the big game, of course, was obviously an Ohio State football game. Right, yes. And Matania was just new to town. He, he, he probably had very little interest in Ohio State football. <laughs> so he it's, wasn't getting excited about the big game. What? <laughs> it's it, it's a challenging place to live for those of us who are not football fans. <laughs> and I, I've always thought there should be there should be like the anti-football thing. Like there should be an organization of people like me that that really have no interest in this, and we should have great times on Saturday afternoons while the rest of the the folks are enjoying their football. So. <laughs> Well, of course, it's the other kind of football, the real football, where they use their feet. Soccer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you, I don't know why this I'm is hearing. positively un-American <laughs> conversation we're having here. <laughs> what do you call football when you're, you're, you're carrying the ball more than you're kicking it? <laughs> so, no, this is, this is un-American, so. Uh, <laughs> I, th I think Glenn Williams' influence has, has rubbed off on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were Australian anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, let's see. Any, any, anybody else I can ask, ask you about? Um, hmm. Oh, I, should, I, should, I guess I should ask about Steve Aaron because I think pretty much every single podcast I've done, his name has come up in one way or another. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he had that, that legendary GFA in, in Akron with, with Julian Bream showing up. I had interviewed him and we talked about that and, it, you know, Steve, for everything that Steve's done, he is an amazing, amazingly hum, humble person, you know, and, and he just, he just, it's the value of hard work and, and just getting in there and doing it and making it happen. You know, it was, it was really something else. Um. Steve Aaron and Bruce Aaron have both served as members of the board, and they're very different personalities. <laughs> and uh, uh, they're both genuine, but they're both they're you know very different from yeah. from one another. And I think that uh, that's the feeling I, I have about Steve Aaron. Uh, he's he's a sort of a, a quiet guy who goes about his business and uh, and 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 does it that. That Julian Bream coming to uh, uh, Akron that time was yeah, that uh, was something else. Theater. Uh, he had just uh, recovered from his accident. You may right. remember, and uh, uh, we were thinking, 
Well, uh, I think it was earlier he played less challenging concerts, but for a group of guitarists, he played. <laughs> I, I don't remember the, the the program, but he played a, a world premiere, uh, and it was quite a challenging piece. Yeah, uh, I actually met him after the um, after the um, the the, uh, the do. Uh, he had a sort of a uh, party in his um, his hotel room. And in Akron, the, the, he was at the Hilton Hotel, which was the old Quaker Oats building. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's a silo. A right. group of silos. You walk in the, uh, the lobby, which is about an atrium lobby, and there's this huge Quaker man uh, <laughs> on the back of the, uh, you know, the Quaker man. He should have a name. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. The old Quaker gentleman. Uh, oh, it must be. 30 feet high, you know, they say. <laughs> and uh, the room, I remember that, um, that, that Bream had, had well, I think it was his, his bedroom, uh, was round because it was a silo. <laughs> and they they cut, cut windows there. Uh, the reason I was there was uh, the, the, the Lucier, John Gilbert, Gilbert uh -huh. Kutars, uh, he was trying to, uh, he was trying to interest um, uh, Julian Bream in a Gilbert guitar. And um, so he, he, he had some different uh, bracing he was, was using, and he wanted to show it to, uh, to Green, uh, who, who, who did look at it and, and did play it. But Green was um, hitting the bottle after the concert. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we didn't, we didn't, didn't really stay long, but uh, you know, to be in his, <laughs> his yeah. presence there uh, was um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I have great respect for. Uh, Julian Bream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was uh, absolutely um, legendary. So, um, and uh, they're both gone. John, uh, John Gilbert was uh, a great person to talk to. He lived yeah. very nearby, and I got one of his guitars. Um, oh. So, yeah, I, I guess I didn't really one see sitting over there in the corner. Been in the center. There it is. Huh? That's number 76. Wow. So, huh? Something else? Wow! Well, <laughs> so I'm playing on little arthritics these these days, so uh, my playing days are my playing days are over. Over if completely. They ever, if they ever started. <laughs> <laughs> so what 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 are you doing these days? I know that you mentioned that you're 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 getting ready to prepare the the, the material for uh, Sunboard Scholar. Uh, what else What else occupies your time? Are 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 you retired or not? I, I consider myself retired. Yes. Okay. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had three uh, students that uh, one of the, I've had for for years. He, he was looking for repertoire that he okay. could play, and as he got older, the, uh, he had uh, arthritic problems too. Um, and uh, I, I kept them out more just sort of. Uh, well, after sixty years, you get a little. <laughs> you know, You've, done, you've put your time in. <laughs> no, that's the beginning of the pandemic. That was uh, that's when I officially officially retired, and I don't go out at night uh, anymore. So reviewing is uh, okay. Is out a Sunday matinee is a, another another story. Uh, I uh, kept myself occupied uh, mentally by uh, online taking a course in Bach toccatas. My goodness. Uh, 
there is there's a zoom for everything and there are there are chronological discussions of things things of that nature and I thought, well I'll, I'll do that i'll go through i'll go through the bacchus by the by the church year i'm, I'm not a churchy person but uh right. you know, the music is so uh <laughs> is so intriguing how the way he recycles um, wow. material and symbolisms whether you read them or not so um and being the local historian or interested in that sort of thing um I got, I got involved with, with people who belong to the, the Palo Alto Historical. It's a historical association of the society. Okay. So it sells paha rather than <laughs> no, it's Palo Alto Historical Association. And um, so I've been helping them catalog the material. And I've taken up lawn bowling. And, oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> That's that's uh, that's a challenging sport. Um, <laughs> it's not as simple as it looks. Also, those bowls are not round for one thing, like bocce balls. They are uh, they are weighted on one side. So oh my! As they slow down, they curve. So huh. the target that you're aiming for, you've got to make an allowance for that curve. Interesting. Well, what, what you, we we have too much to, snow on the ground here in Ohio to do lawn bowling, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it's seasonal sport, maybe. <laughs> well, what about Bowling Green, Ohio? Well, there, 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 is, is, there is that. That's true. Yeah. Actually, there is no Bowling Green, Ohio. I looked into that. I, I understand that Bowling Green, Ohio was named for people who came to it in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Interesting. And that they came from a place in Virginia. Bowling. Okay, well, that makes sense. I, I was having and a conversation the one in about Virginia that. Virginia actually had a, uh, <laughs> a bowling green. It's the only one. <laughs> Amazing. No, oh, actually, so, there well, is a, there is a national championship. There are there are bowling pools all all over the country. Wow! And and would, are you will you be competing next year? Just socially, <laughs> not in the nationals. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's time consuming. Right? Um, yeah, you're on you're on your feet for probably again two two and a half hours. Wow, you know you're you're walking, but you're doing a lot of stooping, and you're and, right. and <laughs> so. Um, but but it's it's a sport that anyone um, of um, any age can can play. Yeah. Actually, the world champions tend to be in their thirties. <laughs> They're either Australians or or from Scotland. Where they take, where they take the sport very seriously. The finals in Australia are, are nationally televised. Oh my! <laughs> wow. Do you know any other classical guitarists that, that are avid lawn bowlers? Not a one. <laughs> Although I can't say I've brought the subject up to anybody but you. <laughs> Well, you know, all all of you listeners out there, if if, if anybody is an avid lawn bowler, let's 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 get in touch and and, and chat about that. <laughs> Peter, it has been an absolute joy to speak with you and, and to meet you and and to make your acquaintance. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I think I think we can we can wrap this up. If, if there's anything else that, that hey, well, you think I, we should uh, talk I, about, hope I had something of interest to say. Um. <laughs> Remember this thing in a very free form um, yeah. letter, but uh, 
Improvisation, I you, you know, I, I never learned to improvise well. So um, <laughs> thinking on your, your feet is the way. Uh, <laughs> so, uh-huh. well, if, if, if I may permit myself to be, um, I don't know if it rude is, is the right word, I, but like you, you seem very young for a man of your um, chronological stature. I'll take that. As a, I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, mm-hmm. and 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 it's inspiring. It's it, you know it's it's it it it, uh, it it makes me think that there are hope. There there's there's hope for the the remaining years of of my existence on this planet. And and you know you are you're quite a quite a shining example of how to stay young. And and, and the beard, by the way, is a souvenir of the pandemic. Oh, is it okay? And I think, I think many, many of us have had, had, had that issue. It's <laughs> also a gift to my bathroom sink. <laughs> it's clogged up if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it looks good on you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> there I am. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think I will let you go. And I again, I really, really appreciate your time. And it's been a delight to speak with you. Um, and maybe maybe we should plan to do it again sometime. Well, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. I could probably come up with uh, with more stories. And, I, uh, I, I'm sure you do. You can. Another sure piece by uh, my Marie Cobb. Well, I looked at, like, well, I look forward to checking that out, too. Do you know when that's going to be published? Uh well, it will be Scholar 7. Um, okay. And there, um, Jonathan wants to wrap it up by the end of this month. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically laid out as it, as it goes. I'm in, in proofreading, putting footnotes in ad- additions. And I said I'd write this, um, this uh, introduction to it okay. and add a few more facts as I, I come, come across. And also putting some of the return with us nows in from um, okay from from the past, um, and uh, I think we're going to need five five of those. Um, uh, they're representative examples of Americana from eighteen thirty yeah. to. Um, uh, it's important stuff. I mean, we need to know about it. Yeah. So uh, nobody's ever played any of these pieces. But they play. <laughs> Sometimes they're they're they're, they're fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I will. I will definitely be keeping my eye out for that. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get you back here sometime. So, really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Carl. It's a, a pleasure to meet you. You too. Bye bye. This is Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook.